welcome to Retirementals, a podcast that dives headfirst into the issues facing the financial sector at the intersection of investment, technology and financial advice. Hosted by Abraham Oksanya, you can expect raw honesty, critical analysis and energetic interviews. Here is your host, Abraham Okasanya. Hello and welcome to this episode of Retirementals and I am really delighted to introduce my guest today. He's known to many of you, he's one of, the le- one of those leaders and stalwarts of our profession, Tina Weeks of Serenity Financial Planning. Hi Tina, welcome to Retirementals. Hi, Abraham. Thanks so much for having me. Lovely to speak to you today. It's it's great to have you on the podcast. Um, You know, you're a big advocate of life planning and um, you're a cancer survivor. So I am really, really grateful for your time to unpack the journey that you've been on over the last couple of years. But for anyone who might have been uh, living under the rock, as I say, um, do you want to give us a little bit of an introduction to how you got into into the industry or the profession and uh, give us a sense of the journey you've been on? Absolutely. Um, So I'm Tina Weeks. I run Serenity Financial Planning. We're a firm of what we like to call financial life planners. And our vision is to bring financial life planning to as many people as possible so they can live a life of freedom without worrying about money. Um, That's certainly a big part of the way we work. For many, many years now, I realized that working with clients in a relational way, i.e. building really strong relationships, taking them through a life planning or coaching um, process, Um, although it's not that rigid it's purely about building relationships but taking them through that allowed people to see a different way of living a different way of being with their money and really opened up possibilities for them and that word freedom becomes so much more important when you have those sorts of conversations so serenity's been working in that way for many years now and we're we're really proud of that we i have no, nothing against different ways of working in our profession. Absolutely not. But for us, this has really worked. It fires us up. It, it's all about our purpose. And to see the difference in people is just amazing. I've always said it's contagious, actually, when you work with people and you can see them shifting. You can see them seeing things they couldn't see before. You see them living in a different way. It, it really is contagious. It changes you as well. And I love it. So I don't know if you remember this. Um, I think my, my very first interaction with you um, was, it must be, you know, seven years ago or so. And you were holding this event with, um, at, at UBS uh, with, um, George Kinder, and the idea at the time was to spread, um, you know, life planning more broadly um, within 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 financial services. And I, I I can remember sort of sitting there and thinking to myself, what what is the alternative? What, what is the other way of doing financial planning? if it's not led by what people are trying to to accomplish so are you able to just give you know a sense of how the way you operate what you do is different than the traditional um advisor would work well it absolutely is about what people are trying to accomplish it just doesn't have such a strong focus on money being the driver of those conversations. And whilst money is certainly a protagonist in, in many of the conversations, we approach those conversations around money in a different way. We talk about people's relationship with money, what money means to them, how it affects their decision making, 
And actually, people's relationship with money affects their relationship with so many aspects of their life. What we don't do is spend, you know, look at it from a traditional way where we either look to ensure that clients have um, any missing products put in place for them or even spend a lot of time analyzing and dissecting portfolios, components of portfolios, returns, you know, those sorts of conversations, very few people find interesting. And whilst important, we we limit those conversations. We bring them in as required, but they're certainly not the focus. The focus is always the relationship, the relationship we have with our clients and how we can help them move forward positively. A lot of what we do is helping them see what's possible for them. Sometimes they can't see that with a little bit of guidance, and that's where we come in. So do you want to give us a, a sense of where Serenity is today, the team, client, give us a sense of, of the business today? Well, we're still relatively, a relatively small firm. There are about 10 people in the business. Um, we still have locations in, in various various geographical locations client wise we we're moving more and more to clients that are owned by the business whilst I appreciate a client can never be owned of course but clients of the business rather than a group of self-employed advisors which is actually how we started off Um, and now really we're looking at it from a business point of view and how as a team we look after and provide world-class service to those clients so, yeah, it's all, it's all going well. And it's been a very interesting year whilst we've been in lockdown, for certain. But we feel really lucky that it hasn't really impacted us. And a lot of firms where the, the clients and the relationship with those clients is, is at the core haven't really felt the effect, I, I hope, of COVID and, and what's happened over the last couple of years. Our business doesn't rely on trying to bring in initial fees all the time and once you walk work away from that model and actually what you have is a group of clients that you like you want to help you want to work with long term and and that is the focus changes that that we've seen over the last year don't really affect us now a word from our sponsor Nikki Hitting Jones is the Managing Director and the Chief Investment Officer at Vetafolio, the high-tech, low-cost, discretionary model portfolio manager. Typical model portfolio service costs about 36 basis points. That's in addition to the funds, the platform, you know, the advice fees. Tell us a bit about Vetafolio's view and approach on fees. Well, I don't think anyone that knows us already, Abraham, would be surprised to hear me say that in a nutshell, NPS fees are too high. Um, If you include the fund charges and the platform fee that you already talked about, we get close to 1%, I think, on average for a lot of retail clients. And that's before they start paying for the financial plan, which is the part of the service that will ultimately add the most value for them in their advisor relationship and experience. Um, so, I mean, my view on fees and Beatrice's view on fees is that they have a real impact on current outcomes that needs attention. Um, and that's why we're building a scalable solution with technology that will allow us to keep costs low. And I think we also should consider the impact of these fees on advisors' businesses too. Advisors need to to make a profit from from their work. They need to have a viable business, and their cost bases have been rising because of regulation. And the the more cost they have to pass through to their clients for overcomplicated services, in in turn puts pressure on the advisor's own fees, and and ultimately makes it not possible for them to to run a, a good business. So fees are really crucial. Um, and I'm really happy that we're in a position to be having a positive influence on the, the trends in the market. Good stuff. Thank you, Nikki. So, so g- give us an idea of um, 
why and how you pivoted the business away from you know the self-employed advisor model into um you know a model where the you know the business as you say on the client and everybody is is pulling together to to serve those clients you know i think it's been a natural and how did you I think it's been a bit of a natural progression, actually, Abraham. You know, when when I started um, and I didn't have any clients or any, you know, any possibility really to to grow at that time, apart from my own efforts, I knew that if I could bring people in to work with me, it would be great. But because Mm. I couldn't bring in advisors on an employed basis at that time because I couldn't offer them a client bank to work with the only alternative at that point was the self-employed model which worked really well for me the, the trick I found was to find people where we shared values and beliefs or we were aligned in that way so that actually we all worked in the same way we still have two self-employed advisors and and they're really you know they're, they're stalwarts of the company they're, they're here hopefully forever but at the time, it was an opportunity for me to increase cash flow, to create create that teamwork and environment, to create systems and processes that could be replicable regardless of the situation the advisor was in, self-employed or employed. And actually, it really helped me set the foundation for how I wanted to grow the business. And then as we grew, what I found was that the more and more clients the business obtained for itself, And we did that mainly through organic growth, referrals from clients, social media, et cetera, and acquisition rather than um, relationships with professional um, introducers, which I was never very good at. But as we found that the the business grew in that way, we found that we needed more advisors to come in and help. And that's when we were able to introduce the employed advisor model. So yeah, so far it's gone really well. Brilliant, brilliant. So I, I am very, um, what's the word, conscious of this. So this is totally, totally down to you. Um, are you, are you, you, you said to me that you're, you're prepared to talk about your, your battle against this horrible illness, cancer. So I'm just going to set it off and shut up. Um, tell us a little bit about that. Well, um, yes, I, I'm, I'm definitely happy to talk about it. In fact, I have done quite a bit already. But I am conscious that, you know, you just said, you know, you use the words cancer survivor. And I don't feel like that in any way at all. Firstly, because my, um, my situation is that cancer wasn't the main illness that I was fighting. I have myeloma, early stages, my early stage myeloma, but that was never the issue for me. The problem was that my um, myeloma triggered a very, very, very rare illness called acquired cutis laxa. And this illness is a connective tissue disorder. And what it does is it destroys the elastin in your body. And for me, it affected two main areas. That's my skin and hence my appearance. Um, But more worryingly, it affected my internal organs with my lungs being the most affected. Um, Actually, we need elastin for so many bodily functions that we don't realize. So when function is when elastin is removed from your body, it has dire consequences. And for me, that led to um, severe damage of my lungs. So I have emphysema now quite badly. And the problem I have is that doctors just didn't know of this illness. In fact, I'm the first person in the UK to be treated for it. And this time last year, after seeing some really rapid decline of lung function, things were looking pretty bad for me. And with no known treatment, we decided to, having read some research, and I was lucky, I had some amazing doctors who were happy to humor me and look at all of the research I'd put together, um, and they'd done their own as well, which was fantastic. But we agreed that there was some sort of connection between the myeloma and the acquired cutis laxa. And if we treated the myeloma, even though it was early stage myeloma, which isn't normally treated, that we would try and halt 
the damage that this illness was causing to my body. And so I've been on chemo for a year now. I certainly wouldn't say that I'm out of the woods. I think this is going to be a lifelong. Um, and I hesitate to use the word battle because you know, it, I don't want people that are ill to feel like they have a battle. This is something that your body's going through. And I'm trying to do it in alignment with my body rather than fighting against my body. It, you know, it, it upsets me sometimes when people say so-and-so won their battle with cancer or didn't win their battle with cancer, as though those people that didn't win failed in some way. Um, it, it doesn't feel like that to me as well. So I do feel like I have a lifelong um, relationship <laughs> with what's going on for me. But luckily, after a year of quite a few ups and downs, a year of being on weekly chemo, which has been exhausting to say the least let alone all, all the side effects those that have gone through this sort of treatment know that the side effects are horrendous including fatigue like I have never experienced before but a year on after weekly um, chemo we've seen some sort of stability so I'm really happy about that we're not seeing the rapid decline of lung function that we did before and they've moved me now to chemo every other week and I'm so pleased about that because I get to have you know every other week where I'm being a I'm able to function more than the chemo weeks so I'm really happy about it but it certainly has um, been an adventure Abraham if nothing else mm. it's taught me so much about I guess the things that are really important and also helped me see the things that aren't important. How much time we all waste on the things that really aren't important and really don't make a difference. How much time we all spend worrying about insignificant things and how that worry impacts the quality of our life when actually all of it is just the stories we make up in our head about what we think and how we look at what might be going on, not actually what's going on. So how how has this changed your perspective in terms of financial planning? Oh, massively. And mainly, I think, because, you know, financial planning, when you look at it, isn't just a small piece of the puzzle that focuses on money. I think we're privileged to do this work with clients. And actually, it, it encompasses so many areas of people's lives. So... When I look at it from my perspective, it, it helped me look at things differently, not just around financial planning and money, but how financial planning fits into the bigger scheme of things, how actually you know, life is, is the big conversation here that we have around financial planning. And financial planning is really the, the tool that we use to help people live the best life that they can. But for me, it was really interesting if I focus just on purely on the money side first, I realized that here I was after many, many years of struggling financially in a really good financial position. And now I'm thinking about how can I pass that wealth on to my children, my beneficiaries um, in a way that was effective. And whilst I have absolutely no problem paying my fair share of tax, you know, here I was now trying to look at how can I navigate the inheritance tax that would be due on my estate in a way that allowed my beneficiaries to, one, have access to sufficient assets to pay the tax in the first place, but also things like, you know, I have a property at the moment with a mortgage. I have to make sure that there is sufficient cash for the mortgage to be paid off if I want my children to carry on living in the property. So lots of things like that and lots of um, exploration around issues that normally a 51-year-old healthy person wouldn't have to think about. When we talk to our clients, you know, that sort of age, you know, legacy is important, but it's not the primary conversation point in financial planning. So I started looking at ways to... Um, make sure I didn't leave a mess, basically, 
And as a financial planner, I did walk the walk. I did have wills and LPAs in place. I did have, I did utilize the tax wrappers in the most effective way. But now I was looking at it with fresh eyes. And it was interesting, actually, from a wills and um, power of attorney point of view, that if I started looking at it from the executors and the trustees point of view, as well as the beneficiaries, there were things that I needed to change, things that I needed to make sure were easier for people to deal with. You know, we all make a will, we quote what we want to happen, but the practicality of the, that actually happening needs a little bit more thought when you're when it feels like that that might happen imminently and certainly over the last year there were three or four occasions where we thought that my chemo wasn't working and that you know I didn't even have the two-year period that you would need to consider you know an aim portfolio or any other BR investment that would need a two-year clock ticking as soon as possible and getting to the end point you know in time so, it, you know, there have been some hairy moments and it really made me question everything I know about financial planning and how to practically apply it in a way that I've not really had to do for clients. I've not really had to work with many clients who are seriously ill to the point where we're looking at trying to tidy up and make the best of what they've got in a limited time. Um, of course, there were some obvious things like, you know, making sure that as much as possible was in pensions. We all know that pensions are outside of your estate for inheritance tax purposes, but also starting to look at what I could transfer to my children, at least, in, in an effective way. I didn't, have, I didn't feel I had access to a seven-year time frame for the poten for potentially exempt transfers. So I was looking at transferring um, as much as I could through... Um, um, making payments out of expenditure. Um, so payments out of excess income, rather, so that my um, beneficiaries could take, could have that in, in their name without it being an inheritance tax issue. I mean, actually, that's something that I wish so many more people used. You know, you can give as much as you like to as many people as you like. And as long as it's payments out of... Um, leftover income so to speak and it doesn't affect your lifestyle it doesn't count for inheritance tax purposes so that was a that was something really good that gave me some comfort that I could actually do something um but yeah it's 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 shown me that as practitioners we have to be really flexible to be able to help clients in a different way if their life changes we, we've talked a few times about clients going through various transitions. You know, we thought about you know divorce, retirement, all those sorts of things. But I don't think personally I've really thought about the practicalities and what's involved when people might be at the end of their life. And a big, big part of that is the psychological impact. It, it really does affect the way you think when suddenly you feel you might not be around for much longer. Um, th thank you, Tina, for be, being so honest about this. Um, I, I still have a few questions on this, so please forgive me. I might not be asking the right questions. But I, I almost feel like, and again, correct me, you know, if, if I'm wrong, I probably am. Um, that there are two parts, the two sides to this, you know. So the sort of things that you know, you, you know, an individual needs to do, right? Um, just before a, a you know a, a major life event like this happens, and part of the problem is that we don't know if we're going to um, be, you know, we're going to encounter this this type of um event in our lives um so so you know so i guess the the question there is what are the things that you did that turned out to be um 
actually a great help when you confronted the illness or you know when you knew you were facing the illness and what are the things that you wish you had done and then equally on the i know i'm using the wrong term on the other side of it now you know now that you know where you are you you've talked a little bit about you know trying to um, you know, change things and 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 plan a different phase of the planning. So, do you want to talk about the 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 side of it before you knew? What are the things that you did um, or that you wish you had done? Um, you know, before um, you 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 had to face the illness. Well, the most interesting thing actually is the fact that you know financial planning is not prescriptive. And often we're dealing with so much uncertainty and unknowns and we're trying to prepare for all eventualities when we just don't know what's going to happen. And we spend so much time with clients trying to help them live the best life they can now and to prepare for retirement. And if we were looking at the flip side of that, i.e. they didn't have much life and they weren't going to get to retirement, we would have to look at changing so much of their financial planning. But if we did that, and certainly in my case where things, you know, I, I, you know, I wasn't given a definite terminal diagnosis, it was up and down the whole time. The uncertainty of, you know, you're going to die, you're not going to die was, was there constantly for me. But it meant that I was really cautious and quite worried about making decisions based on dying and then not dying or not making decisions that then you know then I did die and I hadn't accounted for you know for example you know if you if you start thinking that you know you want to gift away as much as you can but then you need that money you know you sort of struggling or I think the closest before is that when we talk to clients, we're always looking at, for example, if to, if in later life they might need long-term care that they wish to fund themselves, you know, how do we do that? And how do we balance that with the fact that they might want to spend that money in retirement and live their life? We're always looking at that balance of how we can find a way to cover both of those requirements in a way where one doesn't compromise the other. But for me, it, it really was a dilemma, actually. For example, you know, I thought if I, if I am going to be looking at transferring some of my investments to an, an AIM portfolio, you know, making sure it was a qualifying AIM portfolio, but if I was going to do that, I would have to crystallise my assets and realise a capital gains tax liability. So I had to weigh it up. Do I want to pay the tax now to move into a type of investment that didn't match my um, belief system around investing that didn't you know Mm, mm. didn't quite fit it wouldn't wouldn't be one that I would choose it isn't how I invest Mm. my money or have invested my money not thinking that I had a long life ahead of me but that's the but that's one of the the dilemmas that I had do I make this decision now, knowing that and hoping that, you know, touch wood, I'm okay. But what I've done is I've compromised myself financially to try and pre- prepare for an eventuality that I wasn't sure would happen. So, yeah, dilemmas like that, um, you know, it's, it's a difficult one. You, you, you just have to make the best decision you can at the time. And I sort of went for a halfway house in the end. Um, I didn't actually put the AIM portfolio in place. I focused more on um, making sure I had as much as I can in my pensions and gifting. So removing from my estate in that way. But yeah, it was really interesting. But for me, I, I found it fascinating, actually, Abraham, how I was looking at it now with different eyes and what it meant for me in my conversations with clients going forward and being conscious that I don't bring my situation too forcefully into a client conversation you know I don't want clients to to not feel that they've got a life ahead of them and to live their best life whilst at the same time considering what could happen 
because the truth is none of us know what could happen. None of us know how much time we've got left. And the thing is, we all think we have enough time. We'll sort stuff out a bit later on. We'll look at the we will look at our situations with the perspective that I've just described later down the line. You know, we won't we don't need to rush it. We've got plenty of time. And I think it, it's made it clearer to me that we do need to consider this sort of eventuality. You know, I've been a big proponent of insurance for many years and making sure that people had the insurance they had in place, but actually looking at how they can change their um, their investments and their um, their situation in general around not an assumption but a possibility that they might not be around as long as you know we hope that everyone will be and just making sure that they don't leave a mess that was what was important to me I didn't want the people that were left behind to have to deal with things that they didn't have to you know dealing with death and dealing with bereavement is hard enough without people worrying about how they're going to deal with what you've left behind. For example, I had to look at the paperwork that's involved, you know, paperwork that executors need to deal with on death. And I looked at the IHT 400 form. I don't know if you've looked at it um, at all, Abraham. It's not that long a form, but, and it asks quite a few questions and you think, oh, this isn't too bad. But then every question, if, 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 if you say yes, it spins off into another form. So you could end up with many, many forms that you fill in. And when I was looking at it, I was asking myself, where would my executors find the answer to that question? How am I going to make it easy for them to fill in this form? I would strongly recommend that everyone downloads that form and fills it in for themselves. I'm not trying to be morbid. I'm just trying to be realistic. If someone had to fill in that form for you, where would they get the answers to all of those questions? Have you made it easy? You know, everyone should have a gift register, even if it says on the gift register, no gifts made. Because it just confirms and makes it easy to, to answer that question. And if there are gifts made, to enter them on the, on the gift register and categorise them. You know, this is a gift that would be subject to the seven-year rule. This is a gift that came out of excess income so that you, it's easy for your executors to answer those questions. So I was, I've been doing things like that that I didn't do before that I'd really like to introduce and make part of the financial planning work that we do with clients. Mm -hmm. So in, in all of this, there is obviously clearly a business that has, you know, team members, employees and, and, and clients and revenue, uh, and you are the owner and manager of this business. How did can you talk a little bit more about what how you managed or what you did with the business, or are, are doing with the business, but especially in the period that you were going through the the um, you know the weekly chemo. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm still on chemo, but every other week. But yeah, I was really lucky because I realized quite a few years ago that it was really important that I try and extract myself from the business so that the business worked really well without me. Um, I'd passed over my clients to another advisor. Um, I'd created a management team that had quite a lot of responsibility and it all came, you know, it all came good in that year where, you know, not only were we dealing with a pandemic and the changes that that brought, but also the fact that I wasn't as available as I normally was. Um, you know, every Monday, Monday's my chemo day, every Monday I'd be in hospital and every Tuesday would be my biggest recovery day. And then Sundays and for the rest of the week, I might not be well either. But I, I felt so privileged and lucky to work with such an amazing team of people and everybody stepped up you know the management team in particular really did step up they took on much more responsibility they took things forward they drove things forward and 
And I felt that I could just take a step back and focus on my treatment. And whilst I worked as much as I could, I didn't feel that pressure that I would have had to feel if the business relied on me, if the business really, really needed me to keep going. And and that's been such a godsend, absolutely. So has this changed any of your views in terms of the, you know, going forward in terms of the ownership structure of the business? Um, what is the word they use? Um, uh, longevity of the business in terms of, you know, what, what happens to this business eventually? Well, that's a, that's a really, really good question, Abraham. And I think lots of people in my situation think about it all the time. Without a doubt, this is a business that I want to um, continue. And whilst I'm not precious about the, the branding or anything like that, it would be a shame if this amazing work that we're doing with clients doesn't continue in some form or another. I would really like to change the ownership. I'm 100% owner right now to include the amazing team of people that I work with. I haven't quite decided the best way of doing that right now, whether it be through um, direct ownership of equity or something like an employee ownership trust. Um, I'm looking into all of these options and I would like as soon as it's possible to introduce something that really brings everyone in and makes sure that people can see how valued and how important they are and how they can contribute to the longevity of the business. You know, there's only so much one person can do, can do. And whilst a big part of my role is strategy and driving the business forward, it turns out that other people are good at that too. So, right, right. <laughs> so, so it's really good that other people can step in and take on those roles. And of course, I want people to be um, appreciated and compensated for that. No, it's it's really fascinating, and I know we're we're talking about this right in terms of, um, you know, you know, in terms of. This coming up, you know, as a result, or I don't know, as a result, I don't know how to talk about this. You can, you can tell, right? I don't know. And this is, sorry, I'm going to digress. This is the question, Tina. Well, before you ask me, yeah, before you ask sorry, me any on. more questions, Abraham, can I just ask you, yes. what is it you're feeling uncomfortable yes. about right now? Is it the fact that I was ill or that I was close to death, Simon? Is it death that you're uncomfortable with or illness? What is it? It's all of it. I, I don't know how we. Sh I, I I don't know how we should be talking to someone who is going through a major illness in, in you know in their lives. They're obviously you you know they're, they're obviously you know um, doing the best they can, still working. But we know there's an illness. They you know. I really don't know what to say. I don't know how to have the conversation um, without sounding, and that is the point, without sounding insensitive or or not really appreciating the challenge and the difficulty of, of what they're facing. That's such an honest response. Thank you so much, Abraham. And I think you're not the only one that struggles um, struggles with that. I think as a society... We all struggle with talking about death and illness, even though it's inevitable, certainly death for every one of us. I guess my advice in that situation would be to take the lead of the person that you're talking to. So you can see that I'm very open about it. I'm very happy to, to talk about any aspect of my experience. I'm also happy to use the word death to talk about um, what it feels like to have death knocking at your door. I'm comfortable with all of that. But I appreciate that not everybody is. And so maybe, you know, initially just a question like, you know, are you comfortable talking about your experience with me would cover it for you? And if I said, no, not really, I'm still struggling with it myself. I still find it difficult myself to comprehend and to accept 
then you would know to maybe back off. But I, you know, for people like me who are open, then seeing you feel open as well and feel comfortable asking questions that you want the answers to, then that helps. It, it helps to, for me to be able to help you get the answers that you want to these for these questions and sometimes with people it's just a case of you letting them know that you're there that you can provide support if Mm. if needed but but not that there's this secret taboo thing that you know should be swept under the carpet and not not talked about I think certainly as a society if we could introduce a bit more you know be a bit more relaxed about those conversations Mm. It would make it so much easier, not just to talk about them, but for also for those struggling through them to feel that people understand and that they have that support. Thank you. That's very, very helpful. So the question I was going to ask you, or the point I was going to make actually, is that people, you know, we're talking about, you know, uh, you know, succession planning and what happens to the business, right, eventually, right, in the context of, um, you know your 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 illness and how that's changed your perspective, but I feel that this is a conversation that any business um, owner should be a- 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 having. Right? I was at Arm yesterday, right, and I was talking to people who are building businesses in financial planning, right. And one of the questions I ask people is, well, what do you do with this thing eventually, right? And, and I feel that, you know. This is, you know, this, regardless of where, where we are on our, our journey, you start a business, it's established, right? I feel that it has a big impact on the future of the profession, right? You know, one of the reasons why, um, you know, there are all these um, consolidators going around buying advisor firms and, you know, all the problems that come with that is because, you know, financial planning businesses don't have, um, you know, the succession path as you would have in a in a, a professional service business where new partners buy the old ones out, but the legacy of the firm and their professional uh, their professionalism continues. And you know, it was really heartwarming for me when you said, "Well, you'll be great," and I agree for the work that you've done, the, the the business, the entity that you've created to continue in some shape or form. It might be part of another entity, it might be, um, you know, taken over by the people who own the, you know, the people who work in the business. But I feel really, really strongly um, about, 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 about that. That's such an important question, Abraham. And, um, before I was ill, my plan was always to build a succession plan from within, and I was on that path. But again, I assumed that I would have time to do that. We all assume that we have enough time to do these things. It's always something that will happen at some point in the future. And the truth is, none of us know how much time we have. And if we want our businesses to be successful without us, we need to start making plans well in advance. I think we all know other financial planner business owners. You know, it's just recently quite a few that have either died or suffered severe illness and their business has been really compromised. Um, you know, making plans in advance on the assumption that something might happen and hoping that it doesn't seems to definitely be you know, the best way of looking at it. I first came across this a few years ago when a very good friend of mine, Hannah Foxley, died. We'd been talking about working together. She was an amazing up-and-coming financial planner. She was building a great business. And unfortunately for her, her cancer came back a second time and she was gone within, within weeks, literally. And whilst we'd been talking about working together we hadn't actually made any serious plans and what Hannah did was literally write a letter to her clients on her deathbed saying um, you know I'm going to be passing you over to Tina and Tina will be looking after you 
the reality was that these clients didn't know who I was. They'd not been previously introduced to me. And whilst quite a few of them stayed with me, the majority ended up going elsewhere because they were able to take recommendations from other people that were close to them that they knew. And that's completely understandable. So, you know, that taught me a lot. And even to this day, some of Hannah's clients that I look after say that one of the reasons they were happy to come to me was because it wasn't just me, that there were other financial planners in the business. But, you know, on a bigger note, if I am the sole owner of this business and I'm not here, what happens to the business? What do I need to do right now to prepare the business to ensure that success is more likely, even though, you know, we can touch wood and hope for the best that that eventuality never arises. What can I do now to make sure that the business still runs without me? And actually that I have a framework, a structure in place for people to inherit that business and keep growing it and taking it forward. I would urge everybody who thinks that this is something that they don't need to deal with now, just to have a think. If if the worst happens, what happens to your business? Really, what happens to your business? Tomorrow morning, you know, they wake up and they don't have you. How does the business carry on? I agree. It's such an important subject, right, that uh, and one that I feel has a a big impact on the future of our profession, that financial planners create some financial plans, not all, of course, create outstanding businesses um, and that the businesses should have a structure, regardless of what's going on with your health and, and life should have a structure in place that enables the work to outlast the um you know the the, the founders you know or the current owners you know that might be you know as we see in other professional services law firms and others where you know current new partners come in and they take over from the new one that sort of thing but we need that sort of model otherwise we end up with this um, situation where you know in the worst case scenario the the owners of the businesses pass on and huge amounts of value can be destroyed in that process wealth can be destroyed in that process or you know financial planners selling out to large consolidators and and things like that Um, so yeah no I, i think it's really important so Anyway, you're not a woman to rest on your laurels at all, right? And and whilst you are you 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 you're dealing with this this illness, you're managing a financial planning business. That's not enough. You've got this, um, you know, um, coaching and training uh, for advisors going on. Talk a little bit about that and and how that came about. Well, actually, this is something that really means a lot to me. It's it's something that fires me up, gets me excited. And people have heard me for years talking about how working your working with your clients in a life planning and coaching way is, is absolutely the most fulfilling and fun way to work without even taking into account the difference it makes to your clients, the difference it makes to people and how they live their lives. And I've always wanted to deliver my own methodology, you know, a training program that allows other financial planners to deliver this, to be able to work in this way, to get to feel so much of the joy that I have felt working in this way. And throughout, throughout lockdown, Um, alongside a business partner at the time we launched Know Thyself Coaching and Consulting and the first cohort of the certificate in relational financial planning um, started on the 3rd of September 2020. We've run three cohorts since and whilst the relationship with my business partner didn't work out I'm now in the situation where where I've 
at some points toyed with whether or not do I continue the business? Do I not? Because I'm now doing this on my own. And is it something that I want to do when I'm really in this situation with my health? And actually, it was my sister that helped me, you know, get some clarity around that. She said, whenever, whenever you talk about know thyself, whenever you share with us the successes, the difference it's made to the people that have gone through that training, she says, you light up, you have more energy. Mm. You know, it, it, we can tell that it means so much to you. And she was right. And that's why um, I'm going to give myself a little bit more time just to get myself a little bit healthier. But I definitely will be running the courses again in 2022. Um, so watch this space, everybody. I'm, I'm looking forward to welcoming more and more people um, to the Know Thyself Academy. There's a Facebook group that everyone's welcome to join. But this way of working and being able to help my peers and other financial planners learn this way of working, it just, it just gives me so much joy and so much satisfaction and it's definitely something I want to carry on doing alongside Serenity. Fantastic stuff. Uh, Tina Weeks, thank you very much for your honesty, for your time, for your wisdom, for the incredible work that you do in, in our profession. And I am really, really keen to see what comes next. I'm really excited about the future. And, you know, I will definitely be shouting and um, spreading the word about Know Thyself, um, you know, coaching and training when that comes up again. So thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much, Abraham. I really enjoyed chatting to you. Thank you. I'll be remiss if I don't thank my incredible team who worked very hard to put this program together, led by my producer, Hannah Dickinson. Thank you, thank you very much, guys. I'd like to thank our sponsors, Timeline App, the retirement planning software, and Bitfolio, the high-tech, low-cost, flat-fee model portfolio manager. And to you, our listeners, thank you for your time. I hope you've had as much fun listening to the program as we have making it. You can find more about the show at retirementals.co.uk and you can follow me on Twitter. My handle is Abraham on Money. Until next time, thank you and goodbye.